Genesis 22. Some of this in Genesis 22 should be at least familiar territory for most of us here. And yeah, some fresh bread tonight. I think that if you'll open your heart and um, your thoughts to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord, you'll be blessed tonight. I know I was weepy more than once in going through this text and reading about it and thinking about it. And um, even though it's interestingly enough, this is the number one text that scoffers and skeptics and unbelievers and deniers point to um, as their evidence of this is not the God that I would ever want to serve. And this is a bad God and an evil God and it's capricious and so on. Uh, from my heart, it warmed my heart. And, um, and you, I think you'll see why if you understand it from God's perspective and from the Holy Spirit. So let's look at a verse. We'll pray and then we'll get into this wonderful Chapter, chapter 22, and again, we're in the foundations, we're in the beginnings of everything. And it says in verse 1, and it came to pass after these things that God did attempt. Now that word there means test or try. Sometimes they're interchangeable. God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. Now, chapter 21, chapter 20, chapter 19 as you go backwards you find that Abraham and his faith was tested and he failed tested he failed tested he failed and he learned to trust God and you would think after chapter 21 that all the tests are over he's completely trusting now and a man full of faith but there's one more test let's pray together father thank you for your word and Lord I ask God that you will help us again to open our hearts to the truth of your word and Lord, we thank you that as your people who have been enlightened by your word and the Holy Spirit, born again, regenerated, that we can discern the truths of this book. And I pray that we will again and afresh tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the only way you can begin to study Genesis chapter 22, which again is so maligned and controversial in the world at large, is first you have to realize and understand everything that we have learned, that we've been learning prior to this in this amazing life of Abraham. So far, everything that's happened to him has been leading up to preparing him, if you will, for what's about to happen. Verse 1 again, it came to pass after these things. So you have to wonder, after what things? If it says that in the text, you should, your antenna should go, well, what does it mean after what things? Well, again, the, these things it's referring to are essentially all the things that we've been studying about this man, Abraham. We're talking about the, the leaving of his Ur, uh, leaving Ur to go into uh, the land of promise, about his sojourn south down into Egypt and his unbelief, his rescue um, of Lot from Sodom after the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael, which we studied last week and two weeks ago, after these tests these trials in Abraham's life. Now it says, Abraham, after these things, he's about to face the ultimate test. And you know, the reason for this test, the purpose for this test isn't just to see how far Abraham would go in trusting God. Not at all. Remember this. Again, Abraham is the recipient of a covenant that God gave to him. He is the father of the faithful, his entire life, therefore, has a much larger meaning than just his own personal existence. 
And beloved, the apex, if you will, the pinnacle of all of Abraham's experiences is found in this place. It is a place called Mount Moriah. Genesis chapter 22. And by the way, where else, where else in the Old Testament, in all of the Bible, is there a chapter that displays what Calvary, what the cross, meant to God the Father? Because I'm telling you, and you know this, there are a lot of chapters. Lots of chapters show us what Calvary meant to God the Son. Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Matthew 27. It goes on and on. But here, you have this one great chapter in the Bible that shows us specifically what the cross of Calvary meant to God the Father. Verse 2, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Wow. What are you going to do with that verse? God commanded Abraham to commit child sacrifice. Did he? Now understand that this is the same God who forbids child sacrifice. Matter of fact, this is the same Moses writing these words who wrote the rest of the law that includes the death sentence for people that commit child sacrifice. So are you telling me that God is telling Abraham, this is Isaac, this is the son of promise. This is the son that he has waited all of this, his entire life for, the son of promise, the son of blessing, his only son, as it says here, in the sense that Abraham lovest him as the son of promise. And God wants Isaac to be sacrificed? Well, this is the command. And, of course, it's a command and a story that, again, the carnal mind cannot possibly appreciate or understand. I remember many years ago, Time Magazine ran a cover story, as they often did back when they used to be in print. Are they still in print? I don't think they are. But they used to be on the stands, and, and, it's, and of course, it was Abraham. There's a painting of supposedly Abraham in the front. And I read the article and the story, and then I also read when the following issue came out, as I knew it would, and I knew it would have comments, you know, letters to the editor about that story. And I read them all, and the predictable responses. For example, from one woman said, who cares? Who cares if Jews, Muslims, and Christians all look to Abraham as their father of the faithful? I would never follow a God who would command a man to sacrifice his own child. And of course, that sentiment, that same sentiment is one of the favorite all-time scornful remarks of Bible rejectors and atheists. Chris Hitchens and Sam Harris and, of course, Richard Dawkins, they all love this. They, they all say the same thing, except some of them use a lot more adjectives. They get to thesaurus and they go, you know, God is the, the, the evil. But they all say, basically, how can supposedly a loving God demand this? Well, I just want you to remember that for a moment, all right? Put it in the back of your mind, log it there, that this is the text they all jump to to say, there's no way I would follow with a God like that or a Bible like that, and you people are crazy who would follow a God like that. Remember that when we come to the end of tonight's study, okay? For now, I just want us to consider what happened and how exactly this story plays out. Verse 2 says, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, 
whom thou lovest. By the way, that's the first time we talk about foundations. Law first mentioned. This is the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible. It is God acknowledging the love of a father for a son. It's the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. This word. Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer there. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute and talk about Moriah. Because this is a place, Mount Moriah, that was foreseen by God. And geographically, it's basically a ridge in Jerusalem that extends all the way around, and it includes this ridge, Mount Moriah itself, the land of Moriah, includes Mount Calvary. So keep that in mind. And you know, it's very interesting how God repeats this. The Holy Spirit designates, quote, the place, the place. Look at the last part of verse 3. He says, and he went unto the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Verse 9, and they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there. The place, the place. You know, Luke 23, 33 says, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. There, the place. You see, folks, we're studying the foundation of essentially everything in this series. And yes, the foundation of God's redemptive plan is the place that God had long decided would receive the sacrifice of his only begotten son. Verse 3, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood of the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Look at this. No more arguing. No more but God. No more doubting and wondering. No more conniving. No more figuring out another way for Abraham. He just did it. On that command. Verse 4, and on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now, I want you to put yourself in Abraham's sandals, Abraham's sandals for a moment. Ever since Abraham heard God's word back in Ur of the Chaldees, he had this promise. And, you know, this promise from God was so clear, it was so wonderful, that he, if he wanted absolute victory and peace and assurance in life, all he ever had to do, at the lowest point, at the highest point, at any point in his life, all he ever had to do was believe that one promise. Just believe what God had said to him. So did he have to go to Egypt when there was a famine to save his family? Of course not. Because you know what? He didn't have a son yet. Did he have to lie? No. Nothing was going to happen to Sarah. Because she hadn't given birth to his son yet. Did he have to bring Lot as a backup plan, plan B? You know, to be an inheritance or Eliezer as a plan B? Did he need that? Did he have to lie to Pharaoh and call Sarah his sister and thus protect his life and her life? No, because of the promise. Nothing was going to happen to him because he didn't have a son yet. Did he have to lie to Abimelech and, and continue to connive with Sarah to have a son through Hagar because she was getting so old. Did he have to do that? Not if he believed the promise. He didn't have to make any of these mistakes. He didn't have to stumble at all 
All he had to do was trust God and trust God's word and trust God's promise and God's covenant, which brings us to the ultimate test, test of Abraham's faith. God told Abraham to take his son, Isaac, all right, there's the son of promise, he's here now, and offer him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. Now, did Abraham, knowing what we know now about this story, we all know how this story ends up, we've read it, did he have anything to worry about when he was told to do that? Now, think about that for a minute. Did he have anything really to worry about when he was told? Because, no, because all he had to do was believe God's promise. Still. All he had to do was believe his word. Why? Because the covenant, what did the covenant say? You said we keep referring to the promise. Let's refresh your memory. Here it is, back in chapter 17. And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. So, he knows who's going to bear the son. It's not going to be Hagar. Thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. Well, he's got him right here. And guess what? He called his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him. There's the son of promise. For an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Now, wait a minute. Did Isaac have any seed yet? No. Did he have any children when he received this command from God to offer a son? No, you see, it's true. It's absolutely true. That God's promise here and God's command there, they don't seem in our minds to reconcile. But, but folks, remember, neither did they reconcile when Abraham said his 90-year-old wife would give birth to a child. This too was humanly impossible. This time, however, Abraham's faith is strong. Now, it's taken years and years and years to get into his head and his heart that God's going to keep his word. It's very strong. Look at chapter 22. Go back. Verse 4 again. It says, And then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Remember how that was, we said love, first time it's ever mentioned in the Bible? This is the first time worship's ever mentioned in the Bible. Ever. I and the lad are going to go up and we're going to worship. But notice what it says, and we will come again. He's saying, we will go up and we will come again, again to you. Now follow this carefully. Abraham and his son, now they are alone, the two of them, are about to ascend up that mountain. Isaac, who is basically a teenager now, is fully aware of what's going on uh, to, to most degree. And he's in agreement with what's going on, obviously. And Abraham knows what he was commanded to do. And he knows he intends to do it, not knowing how God's going to work this out, obviously. He says to his servants, what? Now think about this for a minute. He knows he's supposed to go up that mountain and God says sacrifice him. But what does he say to his servants? He said, we're going to go up that mountain and we're going to worship and we will come again to you. We're going up, we'll be back. The grammatical order of this, again, is we're going up, we're coming back. Was Abraham lying? Why wouldn't he say, we're going to go up and I'll be back? Just me. Was he being deceitful about the fact that Actually, only one of them would return. No. We'll show you why in a minute. But actually, in this point, Abraham completely, finally was trusting the promises of God. 
In other words, he believed that for God to fulfill his promise, Isaac would have to, at the very least, be resurrected. And if you think about it, that's not so far-fetched now for Abraham to embrace. Because, again, Isaac was essentially brought from the dead before in his mother's womb. Her womb was dead. And God raised him from there. You say, Pastor, how do you know that Abraham believed that Isaac would be resurrected at the very least? Well, in Hebrews 11, look on your screen, would you? By faith, Abraham. When he was tried, there it is, tested. Sometimes translated as tempted. When he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting. By the way, that word accounting, you ought to look it up sometime. That's a great word. Um, it starts with lage, lagemizo, like log, count. It literally, it literally means like reasoning, understanding. This is not some blind, okay, God says kill my son, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna. No, no, he's accounting. So this is faith now. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. From whence also he received him in a figure or a symbol. So here again, look folks, in a statement of great faith, Abraham tells his servants, you wait here until he and Isaac come back to them shortly. But you know, the statement of faith is about to turn into an amazing action of faith. That's why James refers to this when he talks about faith without works is dead. In verse 4, look at it. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. On the third day. You know, it's a three-day journey. Can you imagine that journey for three days? Abraham and Isaac have a lot of time to talk. Now it's the two of them. A lot of time to think and contemplate. For Abraham, it would have been three days of solemn remembering the promise, praying, trusting. Until it says in verse 4, he saw the place afar off, Moriah. You know, the Heavenly Father saw Calvary truly afar off. And what happens next is what our Lord Jesus referred to in John 8, 56. When he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. He saw God's plan of redemption in the same place, the same mountain. Abraham knew by faith, by faith, that God would keep his promise. Now, think about this for a moment. Look at it this way especially in light of these, these crazy critics who don't understand Scripture or God. This is the same Abraham who argued with God about saving Sodom from death. But he's not arguing about saving his own son. There's no, there's no uh, arguing, bartering. That, that's not even close to being sane unless, beloved, unless Abraham knew something. Look at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. You see, he's not a toddler. He's not an infant. He's going to carry the wood, a lot of wood. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took 
the fire in his hand and a knife. And they went both of them together. You notice the father's son is carrying the wood on his back. And you notice that it was placed there by the father himself. When the Lord Jesus carried that cross on his back up this very same hill, when the Lord Jesus carried that wood, understand it was again the father. And it was the father's will as the psalm, it has pleased the father. Isaiah, pleased the father. You'll notice the last line says, and they both of them together. Remember in verse 5, Abraham told the young men to abide, stay back. In the New Testament, there were 12 at the Passover. And in that upper room, and then there were 11 in the garden at his betrayal. And then there were three in the garden of Gethsemane, but only two at Calvary. The father and the son, and ultimately only one. Rembrandt has a very famous painting. It was on that Time magazine. And in his famous painting, he has Abraham be, is depicted as putting his, his hand over Isaac's eyes and shielding him from the horror that was about to come. But that didn't happen at Calvary. Verse 7, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I. Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I thought about that question through the years many, many times. You know, that is really the question you could ask of every religion in the world. Where's the lamb? Judaism, where's the lamb? Islam, where's the lamb? Buddhism, where's the lamb? Hinduism, where's the lamb? Remember, Abel had a lamb. All the way back, the foundations, Abel had a lamb. Cain did not. And you know, since all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, there's got to be a lamb. And Isaac correctly asks, Father, behold, you have the fire and you have the knife, but where's the lamb? And folks, the, the answer that Abraham gives is not only one of the greatest statements of faith in all of the Bible, it is also, you understand, one of the great prophecies in all of the Bible. Remember, last week and the week before, the Bible tells us that God called Abraham his prophet. What did he say? Verse 7, Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb for burnt offerings. So they went both of them together and they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Can you even imagine this scene? And again, imagine a test of faith. Truly this is. I've thought about it many times. I have three sons. I can imagine the look that Isaac gave to his father and the groan that Abraham felt deep in his soul. And then, beloved, understand that this is a chapter 
that teaches us what Calvary meant to the Father. So that whatever Abraham was feeling at that moment, you can multiply it times infinity. And you get but a glimpse of what it cost God to send His only begotten Son. The last line of verse 6 says, And they went both of them together. The last line of verse 8 says, And they went both of them together. They were in this together. Gethsemane. Remember Gethsemane? My Father, here am I, Son. Behold, this cup, Father, if it be possible... Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And unlike Abraham, there was no lamb to be found for God's only begotten Son. There was no other substitute. It's interesting, Abraham said, Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. And then he named the place, look at verse 14, you know this verse, we've preached on it. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord who sees and provides. Well, what did he provide? What did he see first? And then what did he provide? He provided himself a lamb. Now follow this carefully. You don't want to miss this. Verse 9, and they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now think about that. How far is his faith going to go? Now the knife's in his hand. Now he's stretching it forth. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Now remember who the angel of the Lord is. Remember? Now you're going to see that this proves who the angel of the Lord is in the next verse. But he calls out of heaven. Verse 12, and he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Listen to me carefully. The lamb that Abraham promised, prophesied about in verse 8 is the same one. In John 1, 29, when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, Jesus, which taketh away the sin of the world. The ram that God provides here, that was just a substitute for Isaac in this moment. It was a ram. But he prophesied a lamb. So that you see, God spared Abraham's heart a piercing that he did not spare his own heart Jesus said Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad in one hand he held a knife that's death in the other hand he had the fire that is judgment Abraham the father would not have to pour out either of those on his son Isaac. But God our Father put both of those on his son. It wasn't just death at Calvary. It was judgment and wrath that our Lord Jesus bore. Verse 15, look at it please. And the angel of the Lord called it to Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, by myself have I sworn. Well, we know who did that. That's God, right? 
who could swear by no other. By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. God repeats his covenant to Abram then, Abraham then, and then there's this intriguing omission by the Holy Spirit of God in verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose up and went together by Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, where's Isaac? It just mentions Abraham. I mean, we assume he's with Abraham. But do you know this? Listen, it's interesting that Isaac's not mentioned anywhere again in this chapter, chapter 22. He's not mentioned anywhere in chapter 23. Nor is he seen in almost all of chapter 24. In fact, after this occasion of Mount Moriah, after Mount Moriah, the next time you see the son is when he comes for the bride. In chapter 24 and verse 62. It is a fitting type of what happens after the death and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. The next event on God's calendar is the return of the Lord Jesus for his bride. Amen, I'm ready. Hallelujah. But remember the sentiment, all right? Let's go back to what we said at the beginning. That sentiment of the lost and of the skeptics who say, I don't want a God who commands a father to sacrifice his son. Notice how shallow that observation is in the light of the truths of God's word. God's word. For one thing, God gave Isaac to Abraham in the first place by divine miracle. In other words, all he would really be doing is giving him back to God. These people who scorned this, and they don't even recognize as God, God as the giver of life in the first place. So they have no standing. For two, God had already given Abraham ample assurance that there was no way that Isaac was going to be permanently taken from Abraham. And the God who brought him from the dead in the first place with his barren his mother's barren womb. Obviously he had the power to resurrect him, resurrect him to life again. And then for three, this entire story is infinitely bigger than Abraham and Isaac as people thousands of years ago. In fact, we've mentioned many, many times that there are important firsts in this study of foundations. And again, we have two big ones here. One is the word worship and the other is the word love. Love and worship. These are concepts that you know and that I know, but the lost people never understand and know. And they are illustrated by God himself in one of the greatest texts in all the Bible. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his only son, but delivered him up for us all. He spared Abraham's son, but he did not spare his own son. He delivered him up. Now, folks, you try to explain that to a scoffer, a skeptic, a skeptic. You try to get an unbeliever to appreciate Genesis 22. You might as well try to explain quantum physics to a two-year-old or to Pastor Blaylock. Genesis 22 and God's plan of redemption is marching on and on and on. So that you see what happened. God took one of the sons of Noah. We've looked at this. Nothing special about him. Nothing, nothing significant about the man himself. Except that God gave him a promise. And he said, if you will believe me and if you will trust me and my word, I will bless you. And I will bless your son. 
If you think about it, what Abraham was doing on Mount Moriah was, you know what? I, whatever I'm doing now is going to be good for my son because God said it would be. That's faith. It's not bad for my son, it's good for my son. So, he said, if you will believe me, I will bless you and you'll... I mean, folks, look, we can look back now for thousands of years, we can see that God has kept his word. And again, one of the great benefits of studying the foundations is that it's already established that since you can trust God now, really trust God by the end of Genesis 22, then you can definitely trust him and all of his word, the next 65 books in the Bible. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He did right here. He does right all the time. So that everything he goes on to say about salvation, it's true. Everything in the rest of this book that he goes on to say, we can trust it. The last days, we can see it, but it's still true. Everything he said about a sufficient grace, the glories of heaven, his coming again, all of it is as trustworthy as God himself. Oh, but pastor, this woman on Facebook... This woman on Facebook is always yapping around. She says that verse 2 is a text. There's a text that presents a God who is evil and dictatorial and murderous. Verse 2? That's Twitter theology. Because I'm telling you right now, verse 2 isn't the text about Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. This is the text about Abraham offering Isaac. The whole counsel of God. And no Twitter theology where you go in, you jump in and you jump out. And if you're one of those Christians you're watching now, and you're one of those believers who go, you jump into the Bible and you jump out, and you jump in, you jump out, and you find a verse here and a verse there, you jump in, you don't understand it, you jump back out, and you may come back in later. That's worse than not reading the Bible at all. That's not how the Bible was written from God. It is the whole counsel of God. And again, no Twitter theology can ever understand the things of God. And besides, this woman on Facebook or this guy on Reddit, Reddit or whoever you like or don't like or hate to like or love to hate, it's a pretty good rule of thumb that you should never listen to what non-family members say about your father. But they said, look, if they're not saved and they're non-family members, it's really better not to listen to them because they don't know your father. They don't understand your father. And as for these scoffers and skeptics and the Dawkins and the Harrises of the world and all of them. And by the way, their faux outrage, I've seen them get all red-faced. I would never trust a God told his son. The Nuremberg defense that I, I only did as I was commanded comparing Abraham to Nazis and so on. This faux outrage, they actually do. Those are the ones who do promote child sacrifice by the millions and they call it abortion or the health of a woman. They really do actually put people to death. For us, verse 14 says, Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees and provides. You think about that. God saw beforehand Mount Moriah, way beforehand Mount Calvary, so that John would also say that Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. What did he see? He saw that you needed a savior. He saw that you needed an atonement. He saw that you needed his son, his only perfect son of God, to give his life's blood for our sins. 
But you know what he also sees? He's, he's, the, he's the provider. That's what the word means. The God who provides us, who he is. He sees next year, what, or 2024. He sees what your need's going to be if you're going to have a sickness in your family, if someone you love will. He sees if there's going to be some economic crisis in a few months. He sees and provides. He sees and he already has made provision. And this, beloved, is a God that we can trust. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we understand that there's no way that the mind of darkness, that lost people, that haters of you and your book, there's no way they can ever understand the deep things of God. But I thank you, Father, that you have shown us and have continued to show us in this foundational book, this unfolding plan of your redemption, to show us that you saw way ahead of time that this Lamb of God, your Son, was slain before the foundations of the world, that in your mind and your foreknowledge and your omniscience, you knew what we would need and provided what we would need. Help us to trust you because of it for everything, all of our lives. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.